WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA, the official podcast of the WMQ Comics website. I'm your host, Dan Grote. This week we're talking about Captain Marvel, and uh, we're doing it with a new friend of the show, Veronica Furman, whom uh, Matt's known for years and is awesome. Uh, we go deep into the movie, talk about its uh, feminist agenda, its look at a young Nick Fury, the relationship between Carol Danvers and Maria Rambo, the soundtrack, the retcon of a certain mighty Marvel MacGuffin, and the tribute to Stan Lee. So uh, watch out for spoilers. Uh, also, watch out for me and Matt, because we are coming to a town near you, as long as you live in New Jersey. Uh, this is just a friendly reminder, we're going to be bringing WMQ&A to Camden Comic Con, April 27th, at Rutgers University in Camden, New Jersey. Uh, talking live with writer Jerry Conway. And on May 4th, uh, free comic book day, we're going to be posted up at Dewey's Comic City in Madison, New Jersey. Uh, saying hi to our old friend Anthony Marquis, and uh, meeting some new friends, courtesy of the Kubert School. Uh, meanwhile, keep your eyes peeled over at WMQComics.com because we're getting ready to rank the Age of X-Men books with our friend Charlie Davis. And Matt Lazowitz is going to talk about his favorite non-superhero comics by Greg Rucka. Uh, plus, it is that time of the month. Uh, the June solicits are out, so check the site this week for our top picks from DC, Marvel, and elsewhere. Uh, but enough jabber uh, Here are me and Matt and Veronica. Uh, so, uh, Veronica, we'll start uh, off asking you uh, as... You know, something we ask a lot of our guests. Uh, you know, what are what are some of the first comics that you remember uh, reading when you first started getting into it? Definitely Sandman, Neil Gaiman, Sandman, and Fables by Bill Willingham. So those are the first comics I remember reading when I was, I think, around thirteen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then uh, after that, I just sort of. I went for, I dug deep into encyclopedias to learn about the backstories of a lot of other uh, characters, like in Marvel and DC. And then I just started kind of reading what I, sporadically reading what I had more of an interest in. Oh, I really loved um, Why the Last Man and pretty much anything by Brian K. Vaughn. I was definitely the person at my library who insisted on ordering them when, when they ran out, so... We've talked recently to other guests about how important libraries are to spreading comics now. So it's it's always good to hear. Mm-hmm, definitely. I My parents were actually very anti-comics when I was growing up because they kind of thought they were primitive. And I really had to explain many, many times how that was not the case. Actually, so I no, you know, my first comics actually were Archie comics. Um, which I totally only cared about because there was a character named Veronica in them, (laughs) obviously. And Rebecca Kaplan in like third or fourth grade always had like vintage Archie comics with her, like from the seventies. And I was really curious and she was extremely kind and would let me borrow them. And so I would sneak to my grandmother's apartment and read them in secrecy in this tiny little alcove uh, where no one would know that I was reading comics. <laughs> so when you, when you kind of talk about convincing your parents that, you know, uh, comics could be more sophisticated, you know, mm-hmm. did, um, what did you, what did you kind of go with as your, as your argument? You know, did you work with Sandman or? Um, 
I think at the time I didn't want to work with Sandman because it was very adult <laughs> and I didn't want to have to show anyone pages of that as proof. <laughs> so I think I ended up actually doing it by way of movies because around that time we were just starting to understand that superhero movies could be lucrative. And so of course, you know, we, I grew up still watching like Superman and then spider the Spider-Man films and the X-Men films were coming out and my parents really like sci-fi. So I was always like, well, hey, this comes from comics. And so all of these social themes and political subtexts are coming from, from comics. They're straight out of there. They started there. And the, it's not like the films elevate the story. It's just they're another way of portraying it. Yeah, but hey, comics have never been political until the past five years after Oh, all. my God. Yeah, tell me about it. That's <laughs> it. It's wild to me that, you know, now that, like, they've become really mainstream and it's okay it's like okay to be a nerd that the the fanboys are are coming at it like why can't we just have good old red-blooded american superheroes as if captain america was never political as if superman was never political it's wild first appearance of superman he's smacking down union busters and mm -hmm slapping around a white uh, an abusive husband i mean yeah superman siegel and schuster they, they were jews in the late 30s guess what it's political also he's space moses like yes. i'm sorry but <laughs> he's an undocumented refugee immigrant and also like actual space moses he's put adrift in the black to find a place that isn't falling apart where he might be safe and then he could rise and, and you know, be a symbol to people. It's just... And, and thank you for saying Space Moses. The number of times you're like, well, he's Space Jesus. Like, no, that no. wasn't even the myth that was in the minds of the guys who created this character. I know. <laughs> well, it's so funny because... Everyone, everyone assumes that a messianic myth has to be Jesus when really every story has something like that. You know, it's a universal story. It's just one particular version of it has been commodified. Um, and as a as a myth um, as a myth scholar, it's kind of fascinating to me where people either insert Christianity into a story. Or uh, read into it as expressly like something that can only be Christian, Christian as opposed to um, Hellenic or really any other pantheon. Oh, there's a, a great story about um, Peter David, the comic book writer, who granted is problematic now, but he, he, there's mm -hmm. but he wrote um, a seven, a incredibly beautiful seven issue miniseries about the history of Atlantis in the DC universe. And in the end, the, the wizard Atlan, this great ancient Atlantean wizard, um, turns out to be Aquaman's father due to all this weird hijinks. And people got really up in arms about, you know, you know, you're just doing the immaculate conception. This is, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and he's like, Peter David, Jewish didn't yeah. even occur to me. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, and I, comic book superheroes are very much in a lot of ways the heroes of of myth and i mean 
even more so, like we obviously have the ones that are heroes of, of Greek myths like you see in DC um, or heroes of Norse myth like you see in Marvel. Um, so, so there are the obvious ones that are actually named after gods, but also just the stories themselves are extremely mythological and um, have that kind of pathos. So when you see superheroes struggling, um, it's, I think it's also interesting that we we call people, um, our definition of hero has changed in a, in a sort of way where we think of a hero as potentially a role model, whereas in many other um, classical traditions, like in, in the Greek classical tradition, a hero wasn't someone you should necessarily look up to. Like, I would never look up to Heracles um, or Theseus, total douchebags. Uh, <laughs> Odysseus I, could not keep it in his pants. He really not. couldn't. Oh, my yeah. God. But, like, and Odysseus was just a filthy, rotten liar. And we loved him for it. But it's just, like, a hero was someone who is larger than life. You know, someone whose exploits dominated them, you know, and someone whose story you had to tell with all of its ups and downs. So I, you know, like, Odysseus was an OG, I'll give him that. But so was Penelope, because she was, like, the only person, like, the only thing that makes it okay in any way, like, all of the shit that he did was the fact that Penelope is just as much of a liar and <laughs> just as wily, you oh, know? The, the, the bed is one of the best bits in those stories i love it's like oh yeah you just need to move the bed and then you can marry me oh, oh what it's it's rooted into the ground <laughs> you know my it's funny i one of my ancestors like folk legend or the the family legend is that one of my ancestors who was a serf maria she had this very fairy tale like ability where she couldn't be lifted unless she wanted to be like she could shift her center of gravity in such a way that nobody could pick her up. And I mean, she was working around buff dudes who were all, always lifting things. So the Lord of the land at one point was like, Maria, you're doing a great job. Like if you want, you, you can get married. And she totally had her sights set on this one dude, but it was like, you know, feudal Ukraine. And you couldn't exactly like tell a guy that you were into him. You can, sometimes you can't even do it in this day and age. So she devised a contest where like, if you could pick her up, then she would marry you, which is totally like some fairy tale princess shit. And, uh, sure enough, that's how she figured out that he was into her because he like showed up and he picked her up. So. The lesson there is be your own sword in the stone. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Exactly. And that way, nobody can make a dumb sheath joke about you. <laughs> so, I think being that it is the Monday after the release of a new Marvel movie that we have all seen, it would probably be a good time for us to talk about Captain Marvel. I, I will also say we do have a returning guest here who might be interested in adding her opinion as Best the Cat is sitting next. <laughs> and might want to chime in on cat subject matter as not only was this the first Marvel movie with a uh, female title lead, but it also was Marvel's first cat hero. <laughs> we do need a cat expert. We can't um, continue with the discussion without consulting someone represented. Yes. And Bess is very much, you know, she's, she's very happy 
happy to see other cats doing things, <laughs> which means she doesn't have to. Isn't that right? Mr. <laughs> yeah. Cat, cat representation matters, but um, yeah, we're gonna. I'm just gonna throw the spoiler warning up there right now. I mean, this is gonna go up in a week, so maybe you've seen it, maybe you haven't, but you know, for the next little bit, we're gonna be talking. We're gonna be getting into it. So, um, you know, Veronica, I just, I'd love to know what your thoughts are. I enjoyed it, um, and there are many things I enjoyed about it, and there there are moments where I specifically remember thinking, oh, oh, some people are going to hate this. <laughs> They're really going to be like big mad about it. And um, they went there anyway. Like it wasn't, it, it kind of flipped the bird to some, to some people, like very specific things. Um, and that wasn't to say that I thought it was a, a perfect movie or even that I was um, the most enchanted by it. Um, out of all the Marvel films, mm -hmm. but I really enjoyed it. I thought it was solid. Um, and there were a lot of things that I think it's done that other films haven't done before. I mean, what really got me was the dishwashing scene of all things between um, Carol and Nick Fury. Like it just seems like such a, such a domestic thing that, is omnipresent in our lives, but it, it like it felt like that was one of the most feminist things in the film. You know what I mean? I yeah, no, I I, I totally get that. And you know, just just on the whole with Fury, there was there was a lightness to him in this movie. And mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, it's the kind of thing that comes with being you know twenty five years younger. Right. But I think this is my favorite Fury role now. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, you know what that was? That's totally a nod to the long kiss. Good night. Like that's totally what that is because even, cause it's a nineties film, first of all, <laughs> sure. and it's this like buddy action film, um, for any of our viewers who might not know it, it was, um, written by Shane Black and it also, uh, co-stars Gina Davis. And she, she's, um, an amnesiac woman who kind of has, uh, I guess the reverse story of Carol because she um, she's in, involved in a car wreck and then she starts getting memories back of her old like spy operative life. Um, and Carol is kind of in the opposite situation, but it just felt like it just clicked in that certain way. Um, I really enjoyed that, but he, he does have a certain lightness to him and you really get a, I think what some people will hate about it is that it ruins some of his mystique Mm -hmm. Um, just the fact that he lose the way that Nick Fury lost his eye <laughs> was to a cat scratch, which first of all, like, yeah, cats are vicious, be afraid, but also like, oh my God, I can't even imagine how many people are going to hate that like so much. Oh, oh the, the, I, I could hear the nerd rage. <laughs> yeah. I, oh. I honest to God, I really wonder if the scene with the guy on the motorcycle mm -hmm. was filmed later uh, during yeah. reshoots as a reaction. Yeah. Oh, I hope they were as petty as they could possibly be. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I, I do too. I really, I was watching that. I'm like, wow, this is absolutely a slap at every man baby who said that. I love it. 
Yeah. I I hope that this was a react. I mean, it's a reaction one way or the other, but part of me wants it to be a specific reaction to that, not just a general zeitgeist reaction. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think I, I would be really interested in learning how the um, the writing process was with this film and how many things were done consciously what things were removed because they felt they were playing it too safe or vice versa you know um what the process was and at what point they decided like i can i've already cursed but can i curse here oh yes yes (laughs) all right just making sure but at what point did they just decide fuck it fuck everybody we're gonna be petty as hell and we're gonna enjoy it and just revel in that um because there's like at that point there's no way to please the people who are already going to be mad about this film's existence. So you just lean into it, you know? Absolutely. I mean, a dash of salt flavors the meal, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, the same thing when I was like, oh, oh, Annette Bening is Marvell. Oh, there are going to be some people who are going to be real unhappy about that. The best, that part, that was like a double fuck you because they, I know that they put on the site that Jude Law's character was Marvel, and they normally don't lie about that. I know that there was a bit of like going back and forth, like he's clear, like obviously it's Jude Law and he's going to be the bad guy. We know this, but like, what's the, what's the twist? Is he a scrawl in disguise? Is he a double agent? And it's, it's no, like, he's not even what they said he was. Um, Annette Benning. So, Mar- like, the original Marvel was always a woman, was always an alien, and was always fighting space imperialism, which is so cool. And I, I also, like, given how many nods there are to Top Gun, I saw some criticism of, of it being kind of like an Air Force commercial, but I personally didn't get that feeling. For me, it kind of was like, it was it was surprisingly very critical of imperialism, of colonialism, very pro-refugee. Um, and her arc is basically that of someone who who discovers that what she's fighting for is corrupt and and a lie and propaganda. And that alone is always just a, a very cool narrative. I, I loved the fact that I mean there there are really are multiple twists in this movie. Uh, you know, uh, the fact that the scrolls end up being, you know, while admitting they have blood on their hands, effectively being, you know, refugees who are hounded. I wasn't ready for Ben Mendelsohn to turn out to be, uh, you know, one of the good guys. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> All I could picture is him in his imperial whites. It's like, oh, yeah, this guy's already been the the warmongering science villain in a big budget sci-fi movie. It made it much harder for me to, I, I would have, I, the turn made it, that made the turn all the better when I'd come expecting him to be Krennic again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The job isn't done, Urso. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. It, it's just, it was very smart. It was a very smart move. And, and the reason that they were even looking for this, the station was, was beautiful. Um, just, and also like so many children um, in the film, cause he, cause his kid is uh, his daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have obviously Monica Rambeau. And so like, you have these little girls who are learning from strong female role models who don't 
actually have to lose those role models. Like I was really worried about Maria Rambo going out there. Um, I mean, I'm very happy that she got the screen time and I love Lashana Lynch. I absolutely adore her. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed her in, in star cross very much, but like I, you know, I was worried, um, because Disney in general doesn't have a good track record with moms, <laughs> but like, <laughs> it was great. It was so rewarding, um, to, to see that. And I was saying this to Dan before we started recording, but this, I hope future comic book movies take a lesson from this film that you do not need the forced in hackneyed love story. Okay. Well, first of all, it, there's totally a love story between Maria and Carol. That's absolutely there. But I agree that they don't have to like make a romance subplot happen. Yes. Okay. I'll give you that. Yeah, because there was nothing heterosexual about that entire relationship. <laughs> I mean, they flat out say, like, she didn't get along with her dad. And so Maria and Monica became her family. There were longing-ass gazes. Uh, yes, uh, <laughs> I, will, I will give you that. Yeah, so, I'm like, not give, you know what I mean. Yeah. No, no, I know exactly what you're saying. And, like, I don't think, you know, I think you can totally interpret it as a very close platonic relationship. I, Brie Larson herself has said that the true love story is between Carol and Maria. Um, so, but regardless of how you interpret that love, like, that was, I'm, I also have to say, like, grunge, flannel, lesbian, <laughs> Car- Car- Carol, you know, I'm just saying. It's there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, they didn't have to shoehorn any kind of like romance between her and, and Jude Law's character. I was very happy about that. Which is what I would have. That's what I said. Is like you know the making them lovers yeah. or his betrayal is all the more. Yeah, exactly. You know, it, 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 Which the, is what the, I expected because that was kind of what the long kiss goodnight did because she's fighting against her ex lover. But yeah, I I feel you 100 percent on that. And I just, I, I wish the number of Marvel movies where that romantic subplot does nothing for the actual drive of yeah. the movie. Yeah. I mean, you could lift Amy Adams out of Doctor Strange. Rachel McAdams? Rachel McAdams. Oh. Thank you. <laughs> Wait, that kind of goes there. to the point. <laughs> yeah, Rachel McAdams out of Doctor Strange, and it would not change the movie. It, it's that—that yeah. is the greatest offender. Yeah, she um, does not pass the lamp test at all. She, no. Yeah, I, I, of course, I think Natalie Portman is the OG of that. Yeah, yeah. which is such a shame because I loved seeing an astrophysicist as a as a character, but yeah, there was no point to to that romance whatsoever. Um, or I think the most egregious is, example of that is um, Sharon Carter in Civil War. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's like, why? There was zero buildup to that. Like, it's so unnecessary. Um, there's just there's just a lot of unnecessary romance. Like, romance where it doesn't need to happen and romance where it could happen does not. And it's just... Yeah, I'm not. I'm not here for it. Yeah, I mean, I, there are. If the if the main character doesn't have that as part of their DNA, yeah, shoehorning it in. I mean, I mean, Doctor Strange's chief love interest is a sorceress from the dark dimension. It, yeah. it's 
it, it's like you don't need to shoehorn in another yeah. character. And didn't they, it, like, they let us assume that um, Rachel McAdams' character would be Clea, didn't they? Yep. For a little while, and then that didn't happen. First of all, I think Doctor Strange as a whole would have been more interesting um, with Rachel McAdams in the lead role. I would have been more interested in that kind of a doctor than basically like a Sherlock Holmes XB, which I get is kind of like the conceit of Stephen Strange in a way, but I, I'm just very tired of like white um, Western doctors and scientists learning about like mysticism and orientalism and then and then being like oh alternative stuff is valid now that i can't do the other stuff oh the white savior trope yeah yeah or the white guy becoming better and more proficient at something (laughs) than the originating culture aka iron fist yep oh we we do our best not to to (laughs) oh boy that one is just Oh my. It's okay. The Netflix shows can't hurt us anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Although I still need to finish season three of Daredevil. It is very good. (laughs) I need to finish. Yeah, I need to finish that. And uh, I, I'm uh, that's my goal for this weekend. This week I'm on vacation is to play catch up on a lot of the stuff that is on my DVR and on Netflix. I finally finished the last season of Voltron this morning. Oh, I'm so behind on Voltron. Um, have you have you seen Cloak and Dagger though? I have not. That's actually that might be my top um, Marvel show right now. Really? Wow. Yeah, I mean, like it's it's up there. Like, I I have a I really enjoy Jessica Jones, but you know there are certain things where I've I've seen the first season like four times, so I I can pick certain things apart mm-hmm. as well. Um, but but and I love the first season of Luke Cage. I haven't caught up on the second. Um, I love the first season of Daredevil. Um, hated the second and need to catch up on the third. But Cloak and <laughs> Cloak and Dagger, I think, is a show that um, handles very, very complex issues for teenagers without it being. Um, unnecessarily salacious and also just like it it breaks a lot of stereotypes and the music is bomb so oh. <laughs> Very cool. uh-huh. oh and it takes place in New Orleans so it, it's not it's in a different setting interesting and, yeah and you know how New York is a character and everything <laughs> this city um, <laughs> when and by this city they're talking about Manhattan mm-hmm. um, <laughs> not any of the other boroughs but um in who is staten highlands superhero yeah. oh my <laughs> god right like definitely they spend more time in jersey technically than in staten island because you know technically the statue of liberty anywhere it's featured that's jersey so like but Stat- we just all forget about staten island because it's our like it's our vaguely race our, our overtly racist cousin whom we only see on thanksgiving <laughs> Um, and who always brings like a really bad potato salad that we don't want to eat, but we'll pick at to be generous, like uh, well, hey, and not search it. Queens has Shatterstar now, so oh yeah, that, that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah, Queens is getting its due, so that's good. That's good. Was Peter Parker? I guess that's always been Queens. That yes. yeah, Peter lived out in Queens, so I guess Queens is always. Had that. Oh, uh, speaking as a native New Yorker, the most New York thing in um, anything like before Homecoming came out was that little moment between Cap and 
Peter Parker, where they just acknowledge which borough they're from. (laughs) (laughs) That's like, ah, yes, yes. Some actual card-carrying New Yorkers. Respect. (laughs) Uh, that was an adorable moment. But I'm sorry, I interrupted you. You were in the middle of talking about New Orleans. Oh, um, I was. Thank you. Um, yeah, well, well, it's kind of its own character. Like, it brings out this folklore um, and this vibe. And also, it has a very um, ecological current that runs through it, which is nice. Um, and it's very important, I think, um, in, in specific areas where they, there are literally like cancer alleys and things where things, where, where water features, water gets poisoned. And then, you know, I mean, I don't have to remind anyone that Flint, Michigan still doesn't have clean water, Mm -hmm. but, um, this is even before that, like, I don't know if you saw the 2010 remake of the crazies where it had a viral marketing campaign. Um, and, and the whole movie was basically to promote awareness about actual cancer alleys where because of um, corporations essentially and, and, you know, different research and lack of regulations, entire communities get poisoned by the water supply, which happens everywhere in America. So that's my little PSA. Getting, getting back to Captain Marvel for a minute, there, there is one thing, there's one thing in the movie that took me out of it. And this is, I, you know, and I, and this is, I think this, I attribute this to myself, not necessarily to the movie itself, but when they, you know, pulled the, you know, when they revealed the Tesseract, yeah, I spent a good five minutes just sitting there thinking like, I, I stopped paying attention. I was like, but wait a minute. Yeah. When did they find the Tesseract in the first Captain America movie? Did they find that when they found the capsicle or was it earlier in the movie? And I had to go home and, you know, and, and Wikipedia and apparently Howard Stark found it shortly after the plane crash in the forties. And, uh, and like, it was just, that was like trying to recall something that happened in a movie from like eight years ago. So this is, this is the point where the Marvel cinematic universe turns into Marvel comics and, and you have to like, remember all the continuity porn Mm -hmm. yeah you're chasing like the retcon as well where you're looking into it and you're like okay like respect but i don't think you you planned this out like there's a there's this buzzfeed thing out right now where you know where where fury in the in the bar says that he can't eat toast if it's sliced diagonally yes and apparently in age of ultron he cut his sandwich diagonally. And so now people are like, has he been a scroll all along? Is he dead? What's the deal? When are we going to find out? Did they just fuck it up? And so I don't know. But it's it also like it's too specific a detail for them not to recall that he actually is seen cutting a sandwich diagonally. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess we'll see. Um, yeah. Yep. Yep. Oh. <laughs> Um, what did we, okay. So, all right. So here's here, one other thing. Um, the Stanley tribute in the beginning where they changed the Marvel studios logo. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I remember, you know, initially as I'm seeing that and you're seeing all the sort of images of his various cameos from over the years, you know, and I'm sitting there and I'm like everybody else. I'm like, Oh yeah. But it only took me one more second. And I was like, wait a minute. They would never do this with any other comics creator. 
And yeah, that's a good this point. Is, this is fresh. This is, you know, right after he died. So I get that. You want to you wanna do that tribute. It's weird that this is in a movie for a character that Stan didn't create. You know what I mean? So if, like, Roy Thomas had just died, died Carol Danvers was created by Roy Thomas and Gene Colan, uh, yeah. you know, you would not be seeing the flashing images of... I don't even know what you would get. Roy Thomas has a cameo in like Deadpool 2 or like something really random or he's in like a jumper. What Dan meant to say is that Roy the Boy's cameo was in season three of Daredevil, not Deadpool 2. Way to go, Dan. But, you know, like if they had done this with like Jack Kirby, no granted Kirby died you know twenty six years ago, but like if they if they yeah. just flashed a bunch of images of Jack, I would be bawling grown ass man tears. <laughs> you know? But it's just it's a weird it's a touching tribute, but it's also this weird reminder that like no other comics creator gets that love regardless of like their body of work or recognition. We we mm-hmm. barely got a mention of Ditko yeah. in into the Spider Verse. And he was the co-creator of the character. Yeah. It's interesting the way Stanley has sort of become his own sort of character um mm. in Marvel fandom. And and I mean there for years we were all talking about like, oh, he's he's getting up there one of these days we're gonna see like in memory of. And I think it's also just because he's had that cameo in every single film that they were like all right well we can we can string this together and this is the next film that that came out and so i think some of it was things that coincided but i also do think it's a very valid point about like which creators get credit where credit's due and um you know what what does celebrity mean for writers in general Mm -hmm. did did either of you pick out uh kelly sue deconic in the crowd No, and I'm mad about that. Who? Where yes. was she? She was as Carol is chasing the scroll onto the train. Kelly Sue DeConnick is in. She like walks right by yeah. Carol. That bright red hair, bangs, bangs. You know her bangs, and it was great. And I, I just, I gasped a little bit. Like my, uh, my date had no idea what I was like on about, and you know, I'm because I'm the nerd. <laughs> so. But like I, I explained, I was like, "Oh, she she wrote the she wrote the stuff." <laughs> <laughs> I I need to try. I recently was able to snag a couple of those the Deconic trades for cheap, and they are now on my stack because I read one. I, I picked up the first issue. I wound up picking up of that run was an issue that Carol didn't actually appear in. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that was not the – they advertised this is the big anniversary issue, and Carol's not even in it. It's just it, – it's everybody poochying about Carol. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Talking about how great Carol – it's like, I mean, yeah, I'm sure she's great, but I, my Carol Danvers is the is the, the spy sci-fi Carol of the X-Men of the 80s. Yeah. And I, so it was like – I was like, oh, I need to read more of this where I actually get to see this character. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. It's very like when characters talk about another character, it it doesn't have as much meaning if you're not if you haven't already seen it. Um, It can be nice to see like, as in anything to get a window into what other people think of somebody, but it but it kind of loses its its steam if you're not already if you don't already have strong feelings about the character. 
it can work if it's I almost think in issue one or the beginning of a series where you're hearing about this character mm-hmm. and the, the almost like that that moment at the beginning of the the Burton Batman where the the muggers are talking about the guys yeah. who've been you know who've seen the bat that works because it's, yeah. it's building a mythos but when you're clearly supposed to have an understanding of this character and you're going into it at the same time with everyone else having this understanding and you don't have it yeah and it was just I, I it, they they pushed I just remember because this issue was the you know it was the 30th anniversary of Carol's first appearance yeah. and the cover was a tribute to that first issue of Ms Marvel I'm like you know I've heard such good things about this series let me pick this up and I was like oh but but mm-hmm. they're all just talking they're, they're not even necessarily talking about how great Carol is it's Carol's off in space and all of her friends are telling them telling her about the adventure they're having it's like yeah did, did, did anyone an editorial say, hmm, maybe we should swap this with the next issue so right. we have the, 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 the featured character in the big anniversary issue? Another thing is I almost wish that there were more versions of that tr- narrative trope that were like mixed in with the unreliable narrator where everyone has this image of somebody that's very built up and um enigmatic and then you, it's cross cut with panels of them just like barfing in the toilet <laughs> or, like <laughs> you know just fucking up massively reaching desperately for the tums oh there is oh god what is the name of that story um it's, it's killing me that i cannot remember the name there's a batman story from the late 70s, early 80s, mm-hmm. it was in DC's Greatest Batman Stories Ever Told, which came out around the, the, the 50th anniversary. The first trade I ever bought. And so I have a very, very strong recollection of it. Mm-hmm. But it's Bruce Wayne taking this group of Gotham kids out on a camping trip. And they're sitting around the fire and each of these kids is telling what they, t- talking about Batman. And one of them, you know... You know he's the 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 monster. You know this vampire thing. One like like science fiction. They and each of these kids tells. And in the end, Bruce like decides he puts on the costume and he jumps out. Mm-hmm. And they're like, "Oh, Mr. Wayne, you don't do that. You're, what? A, you're, that's not Batman." And it's a great story about that. You know the, what the perception of what because if there's any character where that's part of the mythos, that's Batman. Yeah, absolutely. And oh, I, it's killing me that I cannot remember the name of that story. And I'm going to remember the minute we're done recording because that's yeah, the that's how it works. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like uh, my favorite, my favorite animated show of like all time, Gargoyles, did that uh, oh. once or twice. I know. Yeah. Oh, have we talked about this? I don't I'm know. I'm sure we have because but. I'm always obsessing about Gargoyles. I will never shut up about it. Like I'm not over it. But you know how they, you know, like people, like the the gangs uh and whoever in the alleys are like oh monsters and then and then they show up and they play to that kind of the fear and they and they play the monster role and then broadway like it's like i'm hungry are there any hot dog stands (laughs) open you know so just out of curiosity what are your thoughts on the the proposed jordan peele live action gargoyles movie i think 
at this point, I will trust Jordan Peele with anything. Um, <laughs> and I feel like he would know how to do it. I had a, like, I'm always writing an, a cast in my brain for, um, who I'd like to, to see as different characters. But, um, yeah, I feel like Jordan Peele would understand what it's about. He wouldn't make it, he wouldn't turn it into like Transformers. You know what I mean? No. Um, he would understand what it was getting at. He would dig deep into like the mythology. Um, he would bring out the very like horrific elements of it because there were times when I'm like, yeah, like Demona was scary. Uh, he would understand that like David Xanatos is um, a more intelligent Elon Musk kind of guy you know, who kind of uses capitalism to his advantage and will play however he needs to in order to get what he personally wants, um, but is very seen as very respectable. Did, did I ever tell you that I actually sold Keith David tickets at McCarter? It was oh a great God. moment. Yeah, I, you know, this one actor who's in one of the plays, he, you know, I had helped him with one thing and I suddenly had become his best friend, getting mm-hmm. all of his friends tickets, which is not the way it's supposed to work. Of course. But he'd given my number and I guess somebody goes, hello, this is Keith David. I'm like, oh. hello. And God, it took me everything to not say, can, can, can you call back my cell phone and just record? And he's this again. <laughs> it's like, right. I, I never wanted to be that guy, but for, for Keith David, it was really tempting. Keith David and just gargoyles in general, um, the, probably why I have such a huge crush on Garrus the Carrion from the Mass Effect series. And I mean, Keith David is in that one too as Captain Anderson. So like he he definitely has that presence, but like that, and as does uh, Marina Sirtis um, in, the, in the first one. So there's definitely crossover there, but like I, you know, I was horny for gargoyles. <laughs> there's no, <laughs> there's no other way to really put that. Um, and so when I got a little older, I was horny for um, catbird aliens. Another great. There's was a show on TNT, The Librarians, where. Yeah. Um, Brent Spiner has an uncredited cameo as Puck. Ah, oh, that's incredible. Oh and remember, I watched it. It's like, wait a minute, that's Brent Spiner, but he's not in the credits, and he wasn't in any credits. And I went up looking it up later online. It's like, oh yeah, he's in there, uncredited as Puck. That yeah. makes me happy on so many levels. Yeah, love the librarians, a show made for nerds by nerds. Yes, one hundred percent. Absolutely. Yeah. I love that. Gargoyles is so, um, I mean, it still holds up, you know, in a lot of ways. I still think about it. I will still, like, compulsively watch it just to have it on. It soothes me um, did, when it doesn't make me cry. Did you pick up the, have you read the Wiseman, the comics he did the year of books out of slave labor and the Bad Guys miniseries? I have, I've read the summaries, but I have not read them. So I'll dig them up. Some, I've got them all because mm-hmm. I'm me. Um, they're they're good. I mean, I I wish that we had gotten more of it. That's all yeah. I I want. I, I just wanted more. Oh, and, and 
Go ahead. Sorry. No, no. And it, it washed the bad taste of the Goliath Chronicles out of my mouth. Yeah, exactly. That's what I figured. That's what I, I read. I read about like some of his uh, confirmed head cannons and different things for like what would have gone on. And, you know, just like Lexington was gay and all of these things that just like made me very happy or like, OK, like he had he had a plan that just wasn't what we ended up ending the series with. Yeah. Um, but I was I was going to say, actually, to I guess pivot back to the unreliable narrative thing and also tie it sort of tangentially back to Captain Marvel. Um, have you read the um, the one, uh, I think it's called the Secret Origins comic that Neil Gaiman wrote for Poison Ivy? Yes. Right. So that's like one of my favorite examples of unreliable narrator, but like you really have to have good reading comprehension to understand that everything that she says everything that comes out of her mouth is is a lie or could be a lie um basically to summarize it it's like framed as this very film noir sleazy detective trying to um figure out poison ivy while she's at arkham and one of the first things she says to him like she she says something to him and he buys it and she's like Oh, wow. <laughs> you actually believe that. I just sometimes say things to see if people will will take it at face value. And that sets the tone for the whole thing. And then, of course, she spins the story about her tragic story and, like, how she became who she is. And I think that's where we get the, like, the introduction of, of Jason Woodrow in, in her story. But, like, um, she plays him the exact way that a femme fatale would. Um but it's extremely performative and I feel like it's, it's supposed to be clear that none of that is something that you should necessarily believe. It just tells you about the kind of person she is, but it tells you more about that fleas bag that he is. Um, and then everybody since then has just completely taken everything about poison ivy at face value and, and, and just played her as this seductive femme fatale, um, every, like all the straight guys are very horny for poison Ivy, who is very much a lesbian. Um, she's attracted to plants and Harley Quinn, you know, that's, that's, that's it really. But like, it, it's really telling that every, it's very meta that people actually fall for that. And I think it's also, um, it says something about the way that we view female characters and what our expectations are of them and the way we view them when they're not sexually available to straight men. It's the, the same, and it's why it drives me insane with the Joker. Mm-hmm. The Joker, his origin is nebulous and non-existent, and I hate it when anyone tries to pigeonhole that origin yeah. down into something. It's the great, that's the great, and it's the same thing you're talking with uh, in Paul Dini and Bruce Timm's Mad Love. With yes. Joker tells tells his origin to Harleen Quinzel yes. about when his dad took him to the circus, and in the end, when Bruce is tied up by Harleen, he's like, "He told the, the one he told him about about when his dad took him to the ice show. The mm-hmm. It was the circus. Yeah, and that's the joke. I mean, for and that that's the thing, and for all of its." God knows myriad faults, and there are yeah. more, in my opinion, more faults than not in the killing joke. Mm-hmm. The fact that people sort of accepted that narrative of the Joker's origin 
as his actual origin. When yeah. at the end, he's talking to Gordon. I think it's when he's talking to Gordon. I don't think he's talking to Batman at the time. He's talking to Gordon. And he says something to the effect of, you know, it's always nice when if you have to have a past, it might as well be multiple choice. Oh, my God. Yeah. You know, this is why we really need to teach reading comprehension in schools and be really, <laughs> really focused on that because some people still don't see the obvious things and it really fucks up your perception of stories and, and narrative tropes in general. And to, like, I'm also very much not a fan of The Killing Joke. I And I read it twice just to make sure I fucking hated it. <laughs> Um, and I actually disliked it more the second time around, but I understand it as like part, a very influential piece and very important. And I have a very love hate relationship with Alan Moore in general and more, more so with Alan Moore fanboys. But, um, for me, the perfect counterpart to the killing joke is Neil Gaiman's black orchid, mm. which is in, in many ways, I always think of. Alan Moore as the Freud of late 80s comics in that he brought all of these like horrific things out and then Neil Gaiman who kind of be, became who he was like concurrently he's sort of like the Carl Jung of comics where he came out of that tradition but he also had a, a much more subconscious like dream oriented thing that wasn't um, quite as despairing necessarily and black orchid is not only it, it describes itself in its introduction as a superhero story in reverse so where normally um uh, a superhero story starts off like kind of inspiring and then ends and culminates in a very violent act and this is the opposite where it begins with a violent act that uh it's very important that we're playing as horrific but not not for gratuity's sake. And that it ends in something ideally that could be interpreted as healing. And I love Black Orchid. I'm, I'm obsessed with it in some ways. And it really reads as a clap back to the killing joke in a lot of ways. And it came out, I think, I think shortly after, if not yeah. around the same time. Yeah, it would have been... It's before Sandman. Mm -hmm. Sandman was 89. Killing Joke was 86. So it fits pretty nicely right in between the two. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I really enjoyed that. I feel like my personal belief is, and, and one day, God willing, maybe I can make this a reality, but my idea for a Poison Ivy-centric comic would be something involving Black Orchid and also tying in like the, the green and the rot, you know? And in, in a way that's that's focused on something um, not just about seducing men. That's not really tied around um, male figures necessarily. But um, and that's another thing that I enjoyed about Captain Marvel was that it was a feminist movie in the sense of it, like. In in smaller ways, it wasn't about someone being shocking and surprising because she was a woman. It was more about as a woman fighting systemic oppression and prejudice and also not even 
entertaining anyone's notion that that you are less than because you're female. So I think that was it was more like there were a lot of a lot of very strong fuck yous, but um, and very pointed, um, no doubt song playing. But um, that the, the soundtrack was was fantastic. Uh, awesome. You know, I, 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 I think, you know, Guardians notwithstanding, obviously, culturally, <laughs> that's become the high watermark for superhero soundtracks. This one was my favorite, but also, I mean, let's face it, it played directly to my nostalgia. So. Oh, yeah. But the cool thing was, like, it definitely played to nostalgia, but it also showed how things kind of sucked. Like, when they're waiting for the file to load. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the best things. And it's just like, yeah, there, there's very pointed, like, nostalgia traps where you're like, oh, remember this, remember this, remember Blockbuster. And other times where you're just like, Oh no! This is this is painful and embarrassing. As were the nineties. True. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! So you know what, Veronica? I never got to ask. Actually, how did you and Matt uh, become friends? Oh, uh, <laughs> well, Matt was selling books by the side of the road. <laughs> it was the townwide yard sale, and it was two weeks before Amber and my wedding. And mm -hmm. so we were trying to get rid of just stuff. A lot because, of wedding magazines Yes, was the first thing I noticed. Son of wedding magazines and Dune. a bunch of books. Yeah. You had Dune and a couple of other things, I yep. believe. Yes. Um, yes. And I, I don't think I, I don't, I didn't buy any of them. No, no. <laughs> we just, we talked just talked and exchanged numbers. Um, I think numbers yeah. or emails are one of those emails. and emails. Okay. That was, yeah, more appropriate. And we just became friends and we just started, um, just talking about nerd shit. And then eventually, um, we started hanging out with Amber. We went to see, um, a, a George Bernard Shaw play at McCarter. Which one was Mrs. it? Mrs. Warren's profession. Yes. Mrs. Warren's profession. Um, and then, yeah, Matt has had my back throughout the years. I mean, like when my, when my grandma died, he, he picked me up from my apartment, which was not anywhere near where he was at the time. And then he drove me to like my parents' place, um, so that I could, and this was like during finals and I was like, I had to finish a final paper. Um, I think that was my paper on fractal geometry and mythological it structure. Was. Yes. Oh, and then I had the funeral the next day. So I was like literally typing up my paper and oh, interesting story. Actually, the the professor for whom I wrote that paper, he's my DM now. Ah! <laughs> nice. <laughs> so he's um um he's a mythology professor and super epic, amazing um person. And I took like six classes with him in undergrad. And so now at the at the table, like when you know we were Facebook friends, and so he he kind of put a message out that he was looking for a new DMT group to lead. And I, I just knew I could not let that chance slip away um, because he was the most epic mythology professor, like totally blew my mind. He had a class on myth and pop culture. He had a class on Tolkien. I mean, he taught like Star Wars uh, side by side with like Jurassic Park and the Truman Show for crying out loud, you know, so incredibly epic. And sure enough, all of us at the table. So it's him, uh, his wife. 
and a bunch of us alumni who all minored in myth. And he has, I shit you not, a situation room for Dungeons and Dragons or for any tabletop. Like he has a giant table and then everything has a figurine. Everything is like, you know, has squares. There's a landscape. Right now we're in a place that's like a desert environment. So like everything, like the topography is appropriate for that. Like there's a desert. Everything has a figurine. Every monster we face is a new figurine. We faced a chimera once like two years ago. It was epic. Um, I almost died that time. So it's been, and it's incredible because as a campaign and we, we post things online as well. We've been posting on our YouTube channel, which is multi-classers. So we have all of our D and D sessions and our star Wars tabletop sessions up there too. Um, which version of star Wars are you playing? Saga. Ah, yes. I've, I, I missed the saga. I wish it, it, I wish it had lasted longer. Yeah, but um, but I think the coolest thing isn't just that everything is just so, just so, everything is so committed, but that we also really fuck with tropes. Like my, um, in our last session, for example, we just had a wedding, like a marriage proposal, and it was basically the culmination of like this slow burn relationship that my character has been developing with another uh, character at the table that we've kind of like we we absolutely resisted it in the beginning we were like absolutely no way they hate each other and then it turned into it's funny that they hate each other because they actually have a lot in common and then it turned into like like a crack ship of like wouldn't it be funny if and now we're we're too deep we're in too deep and it was kind <laughs> of like there was a moment where due to hijinks um my character, in order to avoid a different proposal like a, a different um, engage political engagement she had to say that she was already betrothed and she just blurted out that she was betrothed before she could even really think about it and then after that she was like oh shit that's the person I thought of and that's, <laughs> and I could not think of a single other name or a single other strategy to weasel out of this dumb shit and so that's been a whole thing and now the next session they're gonna have to like avoid a battle but um it was really cool because every how often in a d at a dnd table where you're slaying um various monsters and elder gods do you have a moment where half of the table is flipping out like in the penultimate scene of pride and prejudice with the bennett's listening at the door <laughs> you know <laughs> waiting for a proposal like that's exactly how it felt one of our players dropped her glasses and just slid under the table it was incredible never in my life my our my group where we play my buddy vince he's in the process of making that type of room mm -hmm. he's ordering the gaming table He's going to have it all set by the, he just, they just, he and his wife, Amy, they just redid their basement. And now they're getting ready to turn it into the, the gaming hive. And mm -hmm. we're in the process of, uh, we're actually in character creation for our next game right now. That's so awesome. I, I am. We've been playing with them for 10 years. It'll be 10 years come June. Wow. And I, I just finished creating my halfling rogue con artist. Who yes. The, the, who, and I just I was trying to think of the 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 demeanor and the voice because the, I always, when I the my character often comes from the voice that I build 
world for the character. And I realized, let's see, tiny, flamboyant. Oh, God, it's Edna Mode. <laughs> I am <Yeah>. darling. <laughs> That's incredible. Um, my character, her um, her look was based somewhat off of Prima Ajayman's appearance in Sense8. Mm. And um, she comes from... From our, we have basically like a world map, but she comes from the equivalent of uh, the Middle East. She comes from Uruk, and she is a cleric of Medusa, but the Libyan version of Medusa, where she's kind of part of this like um, neutral tri goddess um, instead of like a protector and war goddess. And so she started out like when she left home. She joined the circus, and she had this uh, snake joint snake charmer acrobat act. And then she joined. She became a gladiator after that situation collapsed. And so she and gladiators were basically like the pro wrestlers of their day, um, where you know a gladiator was a big investment, so you didn't normally want to kill them, um, except at the whims of like shitty nobles. But like they were, they were the pro wrestlers. They had these very larger than life personas um, and rivalries. And so she did that. And while she was doing that, like she realized that she actually, uh, through the character that she created, actually did have a an act for magic and was favored by her goddess. And then she became an adventurer. And here we are, like three <laughs> years later, um, fighting actual elder gods. It's good stuff. And dodging, um, dodging um, weird political marriages, and being being forced by our DM into situations where we would actually have to acknowledge characters' feelings, when <laughs> otherwise we would literally our characters would literally sooner die. That, that is that that is amazing. Um, <laughs> We we have uh, we we have actually we have gone over an hour. This has been uh, amazing. But uh, Veronica, as we're wrapping up, uh, mm -hmm. how can people follow you online if you in fact wish to be followed? Sure. Okay. So my Twitter handle is Gorgonica. That's <laughs> speaking of Medusa and snakes. It's G O R G O N I K A, and that's really where all of my um, one my, my witty one-liners um all go on onto twitter and it's where i talk about whether it's D D or my family or uh, my family who my grandmother is is epic and, and kind of known for wanting to um wanting me to get married in in a very savage and merciless way so i would recommend if, if you follow me anywhere it's twitter okay well thank you very much for coming on the show this was a blast this was so much fun thank you so much for having me that's it for this week's show. As always, you can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at WMQComics.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A and WMQComics.com at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where just a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes and the ability to promote your work on our site, and $2 gets you a customized bonus reading column written by our own Matt Lazowitz, built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice. Big thanks to our first and foremost patron, Steve Morris from Shelf Dust and the MNT. Uh, you can follow WMQ Comics on Twitter and Facebook, and you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel P. Grote and Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013. Not a fan of social media? 
Sign up for our weekly Q newsletter, which gives you the best of WMQ every week in your inbox. Finally, and most importantly, check out WMQComics.com for all your comics news, previews, reviews, interviews, and plain old views. And we'll see you next time. WMQA! Hey guys, want to keep up with WMQ Comics but generally avoid social media because it's a forever burning trash fire? Sign up for the weekly Q newsletter and get all your comics news, previews, reviews, interviews, and plain old views emailed directly to your inbox once a week. You'll get links to all our original content, WMQ&A, bonus reading, Joshua Bermont's reviews, our See You Next Wednesday previews, without the nagging feeling the human race is better off being wiped out by a giant asteroid. Just go to WMQComics.com and fill out the field on the right-hand side with their email address. Do it today.